People with Down syndromes face a growing movement of doctors and bureaucrats that argue that they are not worthy of life. That the cost-benefit ratio of keeping them alive is just not a good return on investment. One influential politician describes life with a serious handicap as a desperate survival on a very low level without communication possibilities. Life that, in her opinion, is not worthy of living. To accomplish this goal of human optimization, several countries plan to use prenatal screening to identify people with Down syndromes in the womb so that they can terminate those pregnancies. And in countries as diverse as Iceland, South Korea, and Denmark, government officials have proclaimed that with this plan, their countries can be Down syndrome free by the year 2030. Frank Stevens is an actor who's had roles in feature-length films, including Touched by Grace and Dawn. He's been a guest lecturer at major universities. He's contributed to a best-selling book. He's also an athlete who's competed in the Special Olympics. He also has Down syndrome. And he's been a public advocate for people with disabilities for many years. Yet for all of his success in life, for all the ways that he's been a blessing and an encouragement to others, Frank Stevens still finds it necessary to justify his existence. In 2017, he gave an outstanding speech to Congress about the state of medical research on Down syndrome. Frank Stevens declared in his speech, I am a man with Down syndrome, and my life is worth living. At this hearing, he was pleading and fighting for funding uh, for, to help people who might come after him with Down syndrome and other diseases. And he said that people with Down syndrome are actually a gift to the medical research community that can offer hope to people in the fight against Alzheimer's and other immune disorders. And toward the end of his speech, he asked a powerful and haunting question. Is there really no place for us in this society? One journalist noted that she'd never seen anyone with Down syndrome so eloquent, and she tracked him down to find out uh, how, how he had, what led him to be such an accomplished speaker. And this is what he said. It was very clear. He said, the reason that he's doing so well is that his parents involved him in everything when he was growing up. See, the key to Frank Stevens' success was the inclusion of someone who, by society standards, was subhuman and expendable. See, in life, there's an in crowd and there's an out crowd. I heard one school principal call it, put it this way. He said, if there's an honor roll, that means there's a dishonor roll. And if you're part of the out crowd and if you feel like you're always on, stuck on a dishonor roll, then today you've come to the right place. Church is where we all gladly admit none of us have it all together. At New Life, we're not fooled by our position or how many degrees we have or how nice our house is. Because apart from Jesus, we're all outsiders in the kingdom of God. And today, I want to talk to you about how Christmas starts with an insignificant young woman who has an incredible mission and an amazing message. And how the people who are the outsiders, who are the misfits, are the ones that God welcomes and honors in His kingdom. My big idea today is Jesus came down to lift us up. And I'm really 
Listen, I am really excited about this message. And there are two key things that I want you to see from our scriptures today. First, I want us to see that Christmas, as we've been singing about, is a celebration of the arrival of the kingdom of God and the true king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus changes everything. Next, I want us to see that the kingdom of God is radically different from the kingdoms of this world. It's, it's upside down. It's, it's backwards. It's counterintuitive. And it redefines what success looks like. My text today is Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. It's what's known as Mary's Magnificat. But before we go to our text today, let's review a little bit of the context. One of the main themes in Luke's gospel is the great reversal that the kingdom of God establishes in the world. You see that throughout Luke, there's a special emphasis on those of a low class, the shepherds in the birth narrative, the elevation of women, the honoring of the poor. And this passage gives a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God looks like, how it operates, who's included and who's excluded from the kingdom. And it's also a beautiful declaration of God's prophetic fulfillment of His covenant promises. Now, the immediate context here in the narrative is that Mary, upon receiving the news about her role in the birth of Jesus, she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who's also pregnant with John the Baptist. And this part's actually really cool, though. The prologue here is that when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, it says that the baby in her womb leapt for joy. And Elizabeth herself was filled with joy and filled with the Spirit, and she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. She says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to visit me? And she says this, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Picking up in verse 46, which is our main text today, I want you to see and listen and enjoy that this is one of the most beautiful exaltations of God in all of Scripture. Luke 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as He said to our fathers. Today I want you to see three ways God brings the great reversal. First, God touches people. Now, picking up here in verse 46, we don't know a lot about Mary when she appears on the scene. She has no position, no title, uh, no inheritance. There's no social status that we know of. She's betrothed to to Joseph, but she's not married to him yet, so she has not taken on his status and his name yet. And right from the beginning, Mary begins with with praise from her whole being, from her spirit, from her soul. Mary's response to God's grace is worship. Mary recounts how God has been mindful, how God has been intentional. He's been 
strategic and specific on how he chose her for this specific critical mission. Notice here the recognition of who God is and who she is. She uses the phrase, God, my Savior, which communicates she knows that she herself is in need of a Savior, a Deliverer. In verse 48, she uses the phrase, the humble state of, her, of, of his servant, and refers to herself as, as a female slave. That's what the word means. You could say at this point that she's the lowest of the low. But God has a special place in his kingdom for the lowest of the low. Chris Arnott is an American photographer and journalist who wrote a book that came out earlier this year called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. And I have to say, it's one of the most powerful and moving books I've read in years. Arnott worked on Wall Street for 20 years as a bond trader with Citigroup. But as the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 unfolded, Arnott became more disillusioned with his industry. He became very frustrated with his co-workers and their hypocrisy. They were complaining about the new taxes that were coming while they enjoyed the protection from the government bailouts of the financial industry. This period was somewhat of an existential crisis for him. And during that time, just to, to, to clear his head, he began to take long walks in, in, in the city of New York. And he ended up spending a lot of time in the Hunts Point neighborhood of the Bronx. Now, Hunts Point is an it's kind of an isolated area, surrounded by water in the Bronx. It's very blue-collar. It's very isolated. But when he, when, he, when he went there, he began to just get to know people, and he began to take their pictures. And it's when he got to know people and hear their stories that he realized that there were two different Americas. First is what he called front-row America. It's where you went to the right schools. You got all the right degrees, all the right credentials, and you landed a great job. And then there was back-row America where the poor, the working class, fell further and further behind with few opportunities and no voice. And in 2014, Arnaud began to take trips driving across the country, visiting small towns as well as cities, and he would photograph people and talk with them in the street or in the places where they spent time, like fast food restaurants, and come to find out that while Front Row America likes to just talk down to about how bad McDonald's is, McDonald's is actually the one place in these areas where there's true community, where there's a true refuge. Arnaud describes the book this way. It's a book about reconsidering what's valuable and honoring aspects of life that cannot be measured. It's an attempt to look and to listen with humility. Back to our text. If we're not careful, we can miss just how difficult the circumstances were for Mary. It may be hard to identify with her situation. It's a, it's a different culture, a very different economy. We're separated by 2,000 years. But when I see pictures of the poor, the, the down and out, the working class, the single moms, the people who are on a disability check surviving, people with no hope, I start to understand and one of God's great gifts to us is he will often let us experience in real ways what he's uh, trying to teach us as we walk with him and as we study his word. On Friday, I had the opportunity to be a good husband and to earn some bonus points. <laughs> so, fellas, listen up. Here's a little public service announcement. When you, when you get the chance to earn some bonus points, take it. <laughs> some days we need all the help we can get. 
Becky had double booked her appointment, and one of the appointments was to ring the bell for the Salvation Army kettle at the Walmart in Crestwood for a couple of hours. So I got there, I got all set up, I got my, my red uh, Salvation Army apron on, I got the Christmas plate on the iPhone, setting the tone, I got one of those cool bells and I started ringing, and it was fun, it was great for about 20 minutes. Then things began to change a bit. See, I began to notice that a lot of people would avoid coming close to me. A lot of people wouldn't even look at me. And I started to think, man, what is wrong with these people? They need to get some Christmas spirit up in here. And that's when God spoke to me. And I realized many of them were hurting. They're lonely. You can see it in their eyes. They're lost. And it's amazing what God will show you when you slow down and notice people. It was cold and rainy on Friday, and about an hour into the shift, God gave me another revelation. And as I rang that bell, and as a majority of people were passing by me, for the first time in my life, I had a small taste. Please hear me. Just a small taste and nowhere near close to what the people begging next to the summit feel like. To be totally desperate and dependent on the generosity of others only to have most people look the other way. And here I had the covering, the official uh, apron of the Salvation Army that made me quote unquote look legit. How much more do these people made in the image of God who are holding signs that say, hungry, please help, how much more do they feel the rejection and the shame? It was humbling. It was life-changing. And I think that God wants us to see that in His kingdom, these are the people that are welcomed and honored, the forgotten, the lowly, the humiliated, Mary refers to herself in her humble and lowly state, an insignificant girl in an insignificant town, and she represents these people in her time in Israel. And Mary's response demonstrates how amazing God's grace is. Jesus came down to lift us up. Next in verse 49, from now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. I want you to get this. From now on is an important phrase. It indicates a significant change has taken place in God's plan and purposes. Things will be different. Things will never be the same. And just like Mary, if you're following Jesus, then you have a story to tell. And this is so important because Christianity is not just theology. It's not just doctrine. It's personal it's lived experience. And every person born has a deep hunger to live for something greater than themselves. That's why stories are so powerful. So powerful. That's why I believe emotion has just an important place in our faith as rational arguments. It's not either or. It's both and. And there is a crisis of meaning and purpose out there, and people desperately need to know why their life matters. 
That's where your testimony, that's where your from now on moment is so important and comes in. My own from now on, from now on moment, God delivered me from depression. New Life Church is filled with people who have experienced a from now on moment. People who've been set free from addiction. People who have been healed from sickness and disease. People whose marriages have been restored. People whose prodigal sons and daughters are coming back to the Lord. And if you have one of those from now on moments, would you please share what God has done for you? Because the, pe- because the people coming behind you, they need to see that, that the things that they're dealing with, they need to see what God can do. And we serve a God who created the universe out of nothing. We serve a God who sustains that same universe by the power of His Word. We serve a God who raises the dead. And some of you today need a touch from God. You need the great reversal in your life. And God can do that in a moment. God can do that in an instant in your life. And everything that God does, the great things that He does on behalf of His children, all flow out of His character. He's described here by Mary as holy. It means He's set apart. He's sovereign. There's nothing that our God does not lay claim to. He has no rivals. He asks no one for permission. He is holy. Next in verse 50, Mary extols God's mercy. It says, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. And this is one of those times when the English word fails us. It weakly translates the original word. The word mercy here is used in the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew. The Hebrew word is hesed, which is love that is based in covenantal relationship. It's steadfast. It's rock-solid faithfulness that endures to eternity. It intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue. One scholar described hesed as the bone-weary father who drives through the night to bail his addicted drugs, drug-addicted son out of jail. Hesed is the mom who spends day after day thanklessly spooning, spoon-feeding her child, her disabled child. Hesed is love between a husband and a wife that can be counted on decade after decade. It's not about the thrill of the romance, but the security of faithfulness. And verse 50 is almost a direct quote from one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 103, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. When God touches people, it's always out of merciful, hesed love. God touches people. Next in the great reversal, God touches culture. Luke 1, verse 51, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Mary now moves from how God has impacted her personally to how God impacts entire cultures, entire people groups. Notice in this passage how God is portrayed as a God of action. 
the phrase he has is repeated five times in the span of five verses. And these statements are not just about what God has done in the past. They are also prophetic declarations about what God will do in the future through the Messiah. When these actions are seen as so certain that these future events are portrayed as past realities. She's declaring the truth of God's kingdom, how it operates, and how God changes and redefines the balance of power. Specifically, she's declaring God's opposition to the economic, political, and even religious forces that stand in the way of God's plans and purposes. I want you to notice here in these verses the use of the the parallel contrast in this poetry. In verse 51, God is portrayed as the divine warrior who delivers his people. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm, which is an Old Testament to God's mighty acts throughout throughout Israel's history. In Deuteronomy 4, as Moses recounts Israel's history, he says this in Deuteronomy 4, 34, he says, Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Mary declares how the mighty and powerful God has scattered those who are proud. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. The Romans were just another in a long line of oppressive enemies that the people of God had faced for centuries. I mean, just look at some of their past. You're talking about the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And in the midst of all this, and even today, Israel was never a superpower. Never. In in the end, God ultimately prevailed over all of them. Verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. One of the challenges when we read this passage is, is we need to be very careful in our interpretation. The text here is not a political manifesto about a particular economic system, okay? This passage is not about capitalism versus socialism. And remember the context that God's mercy is for those who fear God, okay? The focus of this verse is what one commentator calls the independent rich, These are the rich who are are, are self-focused. They just want more, and there's no generosity and no love of neighbor. That's who we're talking about here. And on the flip side, those who have been taken advantage of, the hungry, will be filled. This past spring, Operation Varsity Blues blew the lid off of an audacious college admissions fraud, a scheme aimed at getting the children of the rich and powerful into elite universities. According to prosecutors, wealthy parents paid a firm to help their children cheat on entrance exams and even falsify athletic records to enable them to secure these spots to some of America's top schools. In this scam, 31 parents of college applicants were accused of paying more than $25 million between 2011 and 2018 to inflate entrance exam scores and bribe college officials. And some of the things they did were just plain stupid. (laughs) They had some of the kids Photoshop their faces onto pictures of other athletes 
that play like water polo or, or soccer to help boost their chance of getting in. They didn't even play the sport. In one of the sadder elements of the scheme, parents would bribe mental health professionals to get them an anxiety diagnosis because those kids are allowed extra time when taking standardized tests. Here's an exchange between, uh, from a transcript between the mastermind of the scheme and one of the parents. Here's the organizer. He says, yeah, everywhere around the country what's happened is all the wealthy families have figured out that if I get my kid, my kid tested and they get extended time, they can do better on the test. So most of these kids don't even have issues, but they're getting time, and the playing field is not fair. Parent says, no, it's not. I mean, this, to be honest, feels a little bit weird. Organizer says, I know it does, I know it does, but when she gets the score and we have choices, you're going to be saying, okay, I'll take all my kids and we're going to do the same thing. Ha ha. The parent says, yep, I will. Jesus reiterates his attitude toward the proud, the powerful, and the rich later in Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And when you combine the issues of pride, power, and wealth, in short, what it is is a sense of entitlement. One of my favorite Christmas programs still to this day is a Charlie Brown Christmas which originally aired in 1965. That's crazy, 1965. Now, if you've seen this, it's really funny. In the, in the special, Charlie Brown finds himself, as usual, really depressed, but this time it's during the onset of the Christmas season. Lucy suggests that he go and direct the neighborhood Christmas uh, play, but as usual, his best efforts are ignored, and he's mocked by his peers. And, of course, the best scene in, is the crescendo of the program where Linus tells Charlie Brown about the true meaning of Christmas, about the birth of Jesus the Messiah from Luke chapter 2. But one of the other themes in that special is how secular commercialism invades and deforms the Christmas season. And there's this great scene in the middle of the special that beautifully demonstrates this. Sally, who's Charlie Brown's sister, corners him into writing a letter to Santa while she dictates. And she starts off sort of very conversational, asking if he had a good summer, how's his wife doing? And then, then she says, I've been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. Charlie Brown says, oh, brother. Sally says, please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself and just send money. How about 10s and 20s? Charlie Brown, 10s and 20s, 
Oh, no, even my baby sister. And Sally says this. All I want is what, what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. We can laugh because if we're honest, we've all had feelings like that at some point in our lives. And when I consider the scope of the Varsity Blues scandal, I find that it's hard to relate to that kind of power and abuse uh, of position. And I thought to myself when that story broke, I would never have that kind of sense of entitlement. And I may not be super rich like those people, and as much as I want to stand in judgment of them, I'm forced to examine my own heart and motives. How many times do I have a similar attitude in my own sphere of life? In my family, how often do I treat my kids like my own personal servants? At church, how often do I expect expect people to do things that I'm not willing to do? This sense of entitlement, this expectation of rights is at the very heart of this section of Mary's song. And one of the ways that I believe that God touches culture is through us as believers getting our priorities in order. See, the proud, the powerful, and the rich, they live at the top of the triangle. As followers of Jesus, we're called to live in the upside-down triangle of God's kingdom. It's not about upward mobility. In the kingdom of God, it's about downward mobility. And it's that heart attitude that God is attracted to. God touches people, God touches culture, and last, God touches nations. Luke 1, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. See, Mary was a devout Jew who knew her history. Again, here she's prophetically declaring that what God has done in the past is what God will do in the future. And Mary here has in mind the, the national deliverance for Israel promised to God's covenant, promised in God's covenant to Abraham. But she also, on the horizon, has the final end times vindication and deliverance for God's people in mind. And here's the covenant that she's referring to, the promise, in, in, in one of the places. This is Genesis 22, 17 and 18. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Mary declares that God has remembered to be merciful to Abraham. He has has remembered His covenantal love that never gives up. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. The kingdom of God is expanding. But sadly, not yet. The kingdom is not fully consummated. And one of the things that sometimes is a challenge for us, living in the already not yet dynamic of the kingdom, it is a challenge. And unfortunately, there are still many places where we long to see the reality and the fullness of God's promises come to pass. There's a real-life example that hits close to home to new life. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, 
more than 60% of the population lives on less than $2 a day. Half of the country is undernourished. And Haiti right now is in the midst of a humanitarian crisis. Haiti has the highest uh, incidence of tuberculosis in the Americas. Uh, it has um, the, the top um, diarrhea uh, death rate in, in the Americas, one of the top ten causes. And more than one in three Haitians right now are, need urgent assistance to meet their daily food requirements. That's 3.7 million people, according to the UN. Now, the current crisis began when President Moise attempted in July of 18 to end fuel subsidies, but new problems shortly surfaced after that. The Supreme Court claims that the president established a number of shell companies for the purposes of laundering hundreds of millions of dollars of state funds through some shady contracts. His administration is also charged by human rights organizations for involvement in the massacres of his own people and the repression of people during demonstrations. There's been rioting, looting, violence, and much of the country is cut off from basic aid. And many experts who have followed Haiti's progress over the years consider this as one of the worst crises they've seen in a long time. And for Haiti, that's saying something. On November 16th, just three weeks ago, Todd Brisendine sent this message out directly from Pastor Bo. This is what he says. Hope everything is well and everyone at home and the people in the church. I just want to write to you about the situation in Haiti where things are getting worse every day. Life is hard. It's difficult. Only 5 to 10% of the population have access to work now because hotels and other businesses and companies have closed their doors. There's no medicine at the hospital to take care of the sick people. There's no transportation for us in Arbonite Valley because they blocked the roads to the closest city from Port-au-Prince. In Lubin, we recently had a woman die after, birth, after childbirth because her husband could not get any medicine for her infection. Food is very expensive. Everyone is overwhelmed about what's going on in Haiti right now. Please join us in prayer, and if someone can donate to help in the village, everyone is in a difficult situation. Thank you so much, brother, for you, your family, and everyone in New Life for always standing with us in good or difficult moments that we face in Haiti. May our Heavenly Father bless you abundantly. Your brother in Christ, Pastor Bo. It all sounds pretty bleak right now in Haiti, but God has not forgotten Haiti. He has not forgotten Pastor Bo or our friends in Lubin. And we don't lose hope and we don't lose faith. We have a confident expectation that God will renew Haiti. You know why? Because we've seen it. The gospel is transforming Haiti one child, one family, one village at a time. And the kingdom there is taking root and flourishing. We have seen and we will continue to see the great reversal happening in Haiti because God touches nations. And as followers of Jesus, we get to be a part of how God fulfills His original covenant to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. God will always remember His mercy, His covenant love, and He will always be faithful to His promises. I've talked a lot about the kingdom of God, what it looks like, how it operates, and the upside-down nature of the kingdom and how the kingdom redefines what success looks like. But I want to close by focusing on how Jesus himself 
is the ultimate example of the great reversal. Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right up to the very end, Jesus not only taught his disciples how to live, he taught them how to die. Rather, he taught them that the way to live is to die. And Jesus taught not only with his words, he taught with his actions. And on the cross, Jesus gave his life as a ransom so that we may be rescued. He took our sin and bestowed on us his righteousness. He tasted death that we might live forever. And Jesus so loved you that he gave his life for you. And Jesus is inviting you to receive him today as king and savior. In the great reversal, the poor are made rich, the sick are healed, the enemies become friends, the orphans become sons and daughters, the weak become strong, the filthy are made clean, and the last become first. In the great reversal, an insignificant girl from an insignificant town can be the mother of the Son of God, the Messiah. In the great reversal, a little girl with Down syndrome can bring glory to God by portraying Mary in a Christmas nativity play because Jesus came down to lift us up. And I'll close with this quote from the nativity video. He came to our darkness from heaven above. He stooped to the crib and the cross out of love. He shared in our weakness and meekness and mess, and still he embraced us nevertheless. If you're feeling rejected, excluded, a stranger, remember the one who came down in a manger.